Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Ellen Halliday, Deputy Editor at Prospect, and today I'm delighted to be joined by the award-winning foreign correspondent David Loyne on the second anniversary of the fall of Kabul, when the Taliban entered the city, ousting the government and the President Ashraf Ghani. David has been a regular visitor to Afghanistan for many years and was the only foreign correspondent with the Taliban when they captured Kabul in 1996. So he's really bringing to this conversation years of experience and knowledge of the country. David, it's lovely to have you here with us. Hello, Ellen. I'm very pleased to be here. I'm you know, shocked and sad two years on from this uh, terrible anniversary, but very pleased to talk to you. Yeah. Well, maybe let's just start by taking stock of that moment two years ago when the Taliban entered Kabul. What were your thoughts at that time and how did you f- kind of feel watching that play out again? Well, the real shock for me, I worked the, the last job I had in Afghanistan was working as an advisor to the Afghan president, President Ghani, for a year in 2017-2018. And the real shock for me that day was to see pictures of the Taliban sitting at a desk that I knew well, the desk that he had brought back, in fact, into the room. It was a desk uh, used by King Amanullah in the 1920s, who was a reformist king, and Ghani saw himself as somehow modelling his uh, administration on Amanullah's uh, reformist administration in the 1920s, the last time there'd really been an attempt to change Afghanistan. And there was the Taliban sitting at that desk, you know, with the Kalashnikovs on the table and the picture in the background that I knew very well. And I, and that was a that was a real sort of, you know, hit in the chest in a sense that uh, they really were back. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, you mentioned in your introduction that I was with them when they took Kabul in 1996. And it was, of course, a very, very different takeover then. There had been a terrible civil war for the years before that. Um, this time, when the Taliban came back, there had been, albeit marred, albeit you know, corruption was a problem, and albeit that there was still conflict in the country, the last 20 years had changed Afghanistan for the better. Progress had really come, and particularly for women. And that, the, 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 so the shock for the Afghan population was so much greater when the Taliban came in 2021 than when they'd come in 1996. Mm-hmm. Well, let, let's talk a bit about that transformation then in the past two years after decades of, of progress on issues like women's rights. We've seen that being 
pulled back in a very dramatic way and there's been a lot of discussion about that in recent weeks but what does life look like now for ordinary Afghans and in particular women? Well I suppose one aspect to that Ellen is that it's very difficult for us to, to know on the ground I mean I'm not very keen to travel there a close friend of mine was was arrested last year held for six months a British citizen married to an Afghan and uh, you know the Taliban are not reliable and so actually getting first-hand information is very difficult but from Afghan friends of mine people I know on the ground you know the stories are are really terrible I mean one anecdote really of a friend who's a was a government minister is now in London his mother's still in Kabul and he says he's watched as month after month the spaces that she can go to have been taken away one by one. Her access to a public park, a gym she used to go to, a women-only gym. Uh, there was a women-only bakery in the street where she was, a women-run bakery, and that's had to close down. And so she's at home and very and finds it very difficult to go out. So that sense, you know, for older women as well as younger women who've had their lives and employment opportunities and education opportunities ripped away from them. And the shock of that... You know, looking at the WhatsApp groups that I, I follow, uh, talking to people who um, have had so much loss in the last two years, the shock of that is is immense. Mm -hmm. I mean, two two things at least are are different now. One being that there's been a whole generation of women who've been brought up to expect a different future. And the other aspect which you touched on there is information flows are now very different with um, with the internet, with live messaging, do you do you feel that those are shaping your understanding differently of what's happening in Afghanistan now and how Afghans are communicating with each other? Yes, and the internet does make something of a difference, although people are very poor. And actually, you know, one women's network that I was talking to said, it's very hard for us to continue to communicate with the women in the provinces because they don't have SIM cards and they don't have money to buy SIM cards. And actually, you know, aid um, interventions which would enable, you know, for £10,000, um, a small women's organisation to be able to communicate with its people could build real social resilience in Afghanistan. And it's been a real disappointment to me, I think, over the last two years that there hasn't been the kind of innovative aid and development programs that I, I was hoping would happen to try and build resilience in the population and to try and continue to have those networks so that people could talk to each other through these extraordinary modern methods of communication and be able to retain some of the benefits that were made over the last 20 years in social terms. And they're not just in the cities. I mean, one of the striking things um, in the last uh, uh, a few years that I encountered when I was working remotely on a program supporting um, um, communications around the peace process, the doomed peace process in 2020. Um, and one of the projects which uh, with American funding um, we were supporting was going into villages in very remote locations and asking them what they thought about peace. Mm -hmm. And what was really striking was that even in very remote places, Farah in the southwest of the country, a traditionally you know, conservative Islamic uh, society, the sort of place where you'd expect women to be just in the home and not attending the meetings. The, the women of Farah said, no, no, we, we want to come out and we want to be in the meeting with the men. We, in fact, we want them to know what we think about peace. And th that sense of women coming out for themselves and having a sense of autonomy in the countryside and not just in the cities has been something that's been 
a real change in the last 20 years and, and uh, you know, losing that, the Taliban trying to shut that down has been even more of a shock. So it's not just women's rights in Afghanistan and not just a Western obsession. There are an expectation for Afghan women right across the country. I mean, on, on that failed, as you characterise it, you know, peace process, what's the perception now about um, the legacy of all of that work and the impact that that process has, has had on Afghan civil society as you know, as well as clearly the government? Well, Afghans are quite angry, um, people in the government, uh, people in the military, about the way that the fall of the republic was portrayed. You know, the Americans, Joe Biden, rather contemptuously saying, why should we fight for Afghans when they won't fight for themselves? They couldn't fight for themselves because Americans took away their enabling capacity to be able to fight for themselves. They were they were set up and trained as as a NATO army with very uh, impressive software and GPS capability and all the rest of it, that was taken away in the months before the fall of Kabul, so that the Afghan army was literally fighting blind and lost confidence day by day by day. There were some commanders, um, uh, Yasin Zia, the chief of staff, Sami Sadat in the southwest in Helmand, who continued to fight against the Taliban right up until the right up until the fall of the republic, but. As the as the army began to collapse, um, you did see this sort of people in in places right across the country changing their views, saying, well, perhaps, you know, we'll let the Taliban come back for now. And the republic sort of imploded and collapsed. But um, that's because the props were taken away from it. And you remember that during that peace process um, in 2020, the Taliban were forced by the United States as a so-called confidence building measure to release 5,000 high value Taliban prisoners from jail initially. And then another 2,000 two months later, even though the Taliban didn't make any sort of responses uh, that would suggest that, that this had had any benefit. And those people went back to the battlefield. So you saw the capacity of Afghan forces um, to operate um, being significantly weakened by these quite, you know, important people, um, people that they put in jail, coming back onto the battlefield, um, and the Taliban not adhering to any of the commitments that they made at Doha during the mm -hmm. negotiations, when they said that they would sever their links with Al Qaeda, and they agreed a withdrawal timetable with the Americans, and all the Americans did was to withdraw. Yeah. You've written about some of some of this in a piece for our website, uh, which is brilliant. And I'd obviously recommend everybody to go online and read. And in, in that, you talked about some of these generals who have since obviously you know, been, been forced to leave. What are they saying on this anniversary um, of the fall of Kabul? So officers that I've spoken to, generals who commanded in, in the army, are constantly getting calls from men who they serve with, who are in fear of their lives in Afghanistan. The Taliban said they would have an amnesty, but they haven't adhered to anything like an amnesty and killed, tortured, arrested. Many of these people, many of them fled for their lives. But they also know that that would provide potentially a, a new force um, that were there to be mobilization against the Taliban on a more significant scale than, than we've seen so far, then there are plenty of people who feel that they were deprived of ammunition, deprived of, uh, of, of all of the computer software, etc. I was talking about that they had before and are 
um, you know, and want to get rid of the Taliban. So there is there is an opportunity, I think, um, in the way that the Taliban have treated these people, um, real provocation, which uh, enables you know, the, the opportunity there is there to write to try to recreate a force that could fight for the Afghan Republic against the Taliban. Mm. After the break, we'll be discussing in more detail the West's relationship with Afghanistan and the Taliban today. If you enjoy our podcast and would like to consume more of our journalism, then we'd encourage you to subscribe. A subscription unlocks full access to Prospect content across newsletters, web, app and print. And right now, a subscription to Prospect costs as little as £1 per month. Visit prospectmagazine.co.uk and subscribe now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So when we in London or wherever we're based in the West are talking about um, the Taliban, we tend to think of them as being a unified bloc. But you've written in your piece about the existence of different factions. So who are we actually talking about when we're discussing the Taliban in Afghanistan and who the West might try to engage with in future? There is a strong sense, there's always been a strong sense in the Taliban of um, a unified leadership, this is the outside story, a unified leadership from an emir, a single figure. They talk about the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. And the original emir, Mullah, Mullah Omar, of course, was the founder of the Taliban back in the mid-1990s and had something of a sort of charismatic aura as an individual. I mean, I was one of the very few Westerners who, who ever met him. I mean, and he, he certainly led the Taliban and from that sense, they've had you know, a couple of emirs since then. The emir they have at the moment, Haibatullah Akhundzada, who people in the Taliban say he's the supreme leader. He's not been seen in public for many years. He's not been seen in Kabul since the Taliban took the city. He rules from Kandahar with a very small group of people around him, um, Kandahar conservatives. He's a, a deeply conservative Islamic ideologue. Uh, not a, um, a a warrior himself. He was always in the back room as a sort of as a as a scholar, um, but very much somebody who takes a a hard line on 
everything you can possibly think of. Um, for example, his son was a successful, as it were, suicide bomber, and he's proud of that fact, um, which um, is a is something in his makeup. And the the men around him um, are this sort of Kandahari clique of conservative thinkers who don't have um, any of the of the sense of the kind of country that they've taken over. And I think one of the reasons why it took a couple of years for the Taliban to impose the harshest restrictions that they've now imposed is because they didn't understand the country uh, that they'd taken over. They didn't understand the complexity of this, uh, the life in the cities. And so for the um, many of the, of the cabinet ministers that they've appointed are illiterate. They're people who uh, in, in Western terms, you know, don't have any sort of understanding of administrative capacity. They, well, they're literate only in, in, in the Quranic um, schools that they've been in. And uh, so the ministries are not operating very well. And so this Kandahari leadership um, are governing by fear, governing by violence, governing by these di very strong restrictive diktats. And actually, you know, what we understand is quite a lot of the senior Taliban individuals are against, for example, the restrictions on education for girls and mm. stopping women from all from all jobs. They they come out in public speaking in favor of them because that's what the emir wants, but they're personally against them. And we know that some of these secret schools that are happening in Kabul are able to operate because senior Taliban figures send their daughters to them. So there's there's a certain amount of hypocrisy and a certain amount of, of double think that's going on in the Taliban. And of course, that weakens the this very ideological capacity mm. that they have to govern. In terms of other factions, there is the, and there has been some real sense of division between Kabul and Kandahar. So the capital is in the hands of the Haqqani network, led by Sirajuddin Haqqani and Anas Haqqani Sirajuddin, the son of the founder of the Haqqani network, who was one of the great jihadi fighters against the Russians back in the uh, in the 1980s. And Sirajuddin was the leader of the toughest terrorist group. He still has a, an American bounty on his head during the years of the Afghan Republic. And since from 2001 to 2021, many of the biggest terrorist attacks in Kabul, killing hundreds of people, were um, down to him. He's supported by Pakistan very openly. Pakistan supports the Haqqani network. And they operate sort of independently from the Taliban, although he is you know, the, the deputy leader to Haibatullah Akhamzada. The other significant grouping is, if you like, the Doha Taliban, the, the people who negotiated with the West, people who uh, the West, I think America expected, would provide a different kind of uh, Taliban administration because they, they were speaking a different language when they were negotiating in Doha with the Americans. But when it mm -hmm. came to it, they weren't able or didn't want to put those opinions forward to the leadership. And some of those individuals have been significantly sidelined since uh, the Taliban have taken over as the Kandaharis really push, you know, push their writ forward. And the other significant movement grouping, if you like, within the Taliban are younger fighters. And I think one of the main differences between the Taliban now and the Taliban in the 1990s is the sense of their global jihadi ambitions. So in the 1990s, they were just an Afghan nationalist Islamic reaction to the chaos of the civil war. Now, um, many of those younger fighters um, 
are competing for recruits, many of the younger commanders competing for recruits with Islamic State, um, which is quite strong in Afghanistan, a group who are quite strong. They're competing for recruits with um, uh, um, with with other you know jihadi groups such as Al Qaeda, who we know that are allied with them, and are significantly stronger in Afghanistan since uh, mm-hmm. the fall of the republic to uh, to before. Uh, there was a recent UN report which said there is symbiotic relationship between the Taliban and Al Qaeda. Um, uh, the uh, Taliban Ministry of Defense for the Afghan state uses Al Qaeda training manuals. They're closely connected, and a number of other. Um, international terrorist groups have set up in Afghanistan under the watchful eye of these younger Taliban commanders who um, very much uh, could potentially um, be a threat to the region and to the world. Yeah, I mean, the picture you paint here and and in your piece is, is therefore quite an unstable situation. How is the West currently approaching engagement of any kind with, you know, with these different factions, with with governance of all sorts in in Afghanistan, it's very difficult to um, uh, to, to talk to some of the other groups. Although, uh, paradoxically, one of the ways that sort of um, Western countries, uh, the United Kingdom in uh, in particular, has you know talked to other Taliban factions is because they've needed to negotiate the release of of hostages. Um, people like my friend I mentioned who was held last year, and. You know, so you had foreign office people who were talking to people in the Taliban who weren't necessarily the, um, uh, you know, the spokesman Sohel Shaheen, who's their, their de facto ambassador in Doha. What the West has done since 2021 is to set up Afghan interest sections in their Qatar embassies. So Britain, the United States, the EU, etc., have large Afghan sections in the in the Doha embassies, because that's where the Taliban's international political office sits. So they can talk to um, individuals who speak English, um, who are the intermediaries with the uh, the Taliban in Afghanistan, um, but potentially don't actually, you know, have the ability to be able to, you know, to be able to influence things um, in Afghanistan. And talking to other people, talking to, you know, these wider groups is difficult because there isn't, you know, we don't have an embassy in Kabul. There aren't, there aren't other um, ways of, of engaging with them. And as I said at the beginning, the Taliban's outward uh, view is that they are united movements, that Sohel Shaheen is speaking for the Emir, that, you know, they all speak with one voice as a sort of sense of unity. But as we know, they're quite fractured. And um, I mean, one of the um, striking details in um, this recent UN report, which looked in detail at what the, what the Taliban are doing, is the suggestion that, that uh, Haibatullah, the Emir, the supreme leader, has brought back a suicide bomb unit from an elite unit from the front line against Islamic State to protect him in Kandahar because he feels that he's under threat from not from the outside world, not from the Islamic State, but from other Taliban figures. That And uh, at the same time, we've seen reports that the Haqqani network have been garrisoning and strengthening the defences of Kabul. So there could potentially be you know, inter-Taliban factional fighting, mm. which would you know, clearly be extremely destabilizing for the population of Afghanistan. Absolutely. Um, so so you, you've talked about the sort of soft engagement of the West. 
with Afghanistan over over the past couple of years and and how it hasn't um how you might say that it's it's failed with regards to the condition of women this uh you know quite febrile unstable situation how should the west now be engaging with afghanistan um what are the avenues for helping ordinary afghanis and you know potentially assisting in in in, in stabilizing the country and avoiding further conflict i think the west should take a far um harder line i think there should be potentially um you know, real pressure on the Taliban to, uh, um, with more sanctions if necessary against individuals, um, to actually change um, what they're doing in terms of, of negotiating. You know, we've heard a number of arguments in in recent months. Tobias Elwood most strongly saying, "Let's um, the the the, the, the Commons uh, Defence Select Committee Chair saying that if we we need to engage with the Taliban, we need to to have to to be able to discuss things with them, perhaps." you know, open, if not formal uh, recognition, perhaps open an embassy in Kabul so that British diplomats could travel there and operate much more normally. But none of that's been shown to have worked in the last uh, two years. It's been really hard to uh, see any um, changes at all. The United Nations um, is effectively operating illegally now because um, UN agencies can't operate in situations where they don't employ men and women equally. And um, uh, they're really scratching their heads as to what to do about that. And my own view is that the the West would uh, be far better advised to support potential democratic opposition groups, um, uh, not support armed opposition against the Taliban, but to support democratic opposition groups and and take a pragmatic line towards the fact that some of those democratic groups have links with armed opposition groups um, in order to prepare for a potential post-Taliban future. It's very difficult to imagine that there are going to be negotiations of any description with the Taliban who don't see the opposition as, as being possible in their ideological worldview. In an Islamic emirate, there isn't such a thing as a, an opposition. So... You have this really strange situation where the world is saying, you know, let's have dialogue with the Taliban. Let's try to get some of these groups from outside to talk to them. Let's see if we can, you know, open a window and try to change their view on women's rights. None of that's worked. It's failed completely. One of the problems, though, Ellen, is that in the last two years, we've seen the Biden administration in America wanting to really shut down all creative thinking about Afghanistan because they see the withdrawal as being successful. President Biden is deluding himself that the Taliban are somehow supporting the United States in anti-terrorist initiatives. Um, The Taliban have been very uh, clever, very cute, really, in persuading uh, American intelligence that they're doing that, when all the evidence is that they are actually supporting international terrorist groups who are operating in Afghanistan. Um, But America is not the West. And I think there is an opportunity now for the United Kingdom to take a lead, actually, to say, uh, let's put a few million pounds, it wouldn't cost much to try to convene a potential, you know, opposition groups. It's taken two years, but now, you know, those democratic opposition groups are beginning to get together themselves, but they don't have any money, they don't have any capacity to, you know, to travel, um, to, to convene themselves. And I think the convening authority and opportunities are there for Western countries to say, maybe there could be a different future for Afghanistan than the Taliban being in power. 
I was partly responsible for convening a, a conference at King's College, where I'm a visiting senior fellow last month. And the atmosphere in the room was was extraordinary, with, with opposition leaders, former ministers in the, in the Afghan Republic, and Fawzia Kufi, who's a former MP, former deputy speaker of the Afghan parliament, um, one of the most prominent Afghan women politicians, and in fact, one of the negotiators in Doha in 2020. I remember her saying at the conference that perhaps we're more united than we think we are. I mean, of course, the Afghan opposition, they all have different equities. They all come from different backgrounds, different tribal groups. She said, perhaps the Taliban are the ones who are divided and we're more united than we think we are. We're united in wanting to restore women's rights and wanting to return Afghanistan to a democratic government. And surely those are the kinds of values that Western countries who expended so much blood and treasure over the last 20 years would be willing to support but it seems at the moment that they're not. David, well, that's absolutely fascinating. And, and I think a, a great note to end on and throwing it forwards with a, with a, a message of opportunity and, and hope there among the, among the Afghan opposition. So thank you so much for joining us, for sharing your expertise and your insights. And if you enjoyed this podcast at home, then do head to our website and read David's reporting on Afghanistan, as well as, of course, grabbing a copy of the latest issue of the magazine, which includes writing from Guy Standing on how the crown cashes in on our seabed, Matthew Dancona on the cultural fallout from Oppenheimer, and a diary by Caroline Lucas. And while you're here, why don't you subscribe to something slightly different? Prospect Lives is a monthly series of audio diary entries from our family of seven writers, including Sheila Hancock, Alice Goodman, and Mike Brearley. It is honestly a joy. Sometimes it will make you laugh, sometimes it will make you cry, but it will definitely give you a snapshot of the lives of people who live a little differently to you. Just search for Prospect Lives wherever you get your podcast or click on the link in the show notes of this episode. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.